as humans, we can do amazing things. And if we think about some of the greatest innovations that we have from the silly little sticky notes to the microwave oven to, you know, I can just go on. They're all things that humans have come up with that an AI or an algorithm cannot. The way to combine these two, the humans and the algorithms, is the way to success. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Do you tune in regularly to Superhumans at Work podcast to get your ideas on how to be a superhuman at work? I would love to hear from you what has been some of the most transformational ideas that you have heard on this show and possibly feature you in one of our stories. Be sure to reach out to me at jason at mindvalley.com and send me a quick email about your story of transformation so we can start a conversation and get you featured on Mindvalley. Now, let's get started with this episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. This is your host, Jason Campbell, and I have a special guest today who's going to come and talk to us about what's happening within our lives with the rise of all these technologies that could seem so foreign to us, yet they're in our lives already. And we're going to talk about how this can actually impact you in the workplace and how you can actually start working with these technologies and not necessarily being afraid of them. Now, Dr. Nada Sanders is a distinguished professor when it comes to supply chain management. This is how you look at flows of goods, services, and how everything ties together so that you can actually bring more efficiency and for companies to run better. Now, she's had a chance to write several books on the topic, yet her latest book, which is all about the human machine, how that we can work together with machines and looking at what the future is going to look like. We know that a fourth industrial revolution is on its way, an age of AI, machine learning, robotics, blockchains, the internet of things. These words get tossed around. What do they mean for us in the workplace? How do we become more competitive? How do we grow as leaders and as managers so that we can use these and not become one of those big companies that ends up being in the history books as the ones that went bankrupt? We can adapt, we can thrive, and we're going to learn some amazing insights today with Dr. Sanders. Dr. Sanders, thank you so much for being on the call with me today. Thank you, Jason. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, I love this. The title is called Huma Machine, and I can't help but think of this image of an android or some Terminator future, but I don't think this is the case. Can you break us down? What do you mean by human machine, and why is it important for us to know in the workplace? So the human machine, the human machine is the emerging enterprise of the future that combines the best of humans with machines. And in the book, we outline what this enterprise looks like. We are already seeing examples of it, numerous companies like Google, Hire, and so forth. But when we started this project to identify really the use of AI, all the things that you had mentioned in the enterprise, we started out with the idea of really being mesmerized with what AI can do. But after really hundreds of companies looking at success stories and failures, we really began to realize what was very ironic is the key to success 
in enterprises when it comes to technology is not the technology, but it's the human element. And it was really eye-opening, so much so that I told my colleague, I said, you know, what we are calling the technology era should really probably be called the human era. And the reason for that is that the capabilities that we have with technology are not a plug-and-play solution that a company can just acquire, bring in. It's not like you know having a new software on your computer system. But rather, it is integrating the human element. As humans, we can do amazing things. And if we think about some of the greatest innovations that we have, from the silly little sticky notes to the microwave oven to, you know, I can just go on, they're all things that humans have come up with that an AI or an algorithm cannot. The way to combine these two, the humans and the algorithms, is the way to success. There's lots of examples, but it is completely misguided to think that, oh, we'll replace our workforce with technology. And I fear that a lot of companies are kind of moving in this direction, thinking that algorithms can do it all. And you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen is these companies are going to be the next generation of those that are left behind. And the companies that succeed are those that really put their workforce first and acquire technology in a way that brings together the human element with the workforce in the most efficient way. So that's really what the human machine is about. And we outline that a great deal in the book, as well as what the workforce needs to do to get ready for this new era. That's really interesting because I think of how technology, as I was growing up, it always seems like everything that was coming out when it comes to the birth of the internet, better email communication, you could reach people faster through our mobile devices. Everything that I feel I've been exposed to growing up through technology has been these tools that have made me be able to process information faster. I've been able to access information faster. And today, it's almost like every new technology feels more like something that I've already reached my human limit of how much information can come in so that I almost look with hesitation to the new technology. And I'm like, I can't keep up. These new technologies are so much more than what I'm able to process now that it's almost why I'm having this sense of like, I have to be replaced because I've just reached my cognitive limit. How do you break away from that? And should I be thinking completely different here? No. So there are a lot of different philosophies. You are exactly right. I mean, we have reached our limit. So there are ways that organizations can retrain workers to become more human and that interface, the interaction with really our new co-workers, if you will. That interaction, that interface that uh, feeds us the information in a way that we can process it best is the way to go. Now, there are some who really think that, you know, maybe implants are down the road. I mean, Elon Musk, who I love, but, you know, Elon is a big fan of the neural lace. Neural lace is the digital implant of microchips in our brain. And there are proponents of that. I just think that 
realistically, I don't see an executive board being filled with cyborgs or the human workforce being filled with cyborgs. But it also does not take advantage and leverage our human strengths. So I think for years, what's happened is we have really sought after STEM and technology. And I'm an engineer in a past life, what it feels like, but I am an engineer. I've taught strong technical skills. So I'm not trying to denigrate STEM and the technical skills. However, I think all of us have for generations really pushed the technical skills in favor of some really amazing human skills like emotional intelligence and intuition and innovation and creative thinking. And there are ways that we can foster and bring that out more in the human element because just making us more like machines is really suboptimal. We're not going to ever be as good as machines are in terms of processing vast amounts of data. So why make us cyborgs? Why not make us be better versions of ourselves and really develop our human talents? Let the machines do the number crunching and processing all the data. We will never be as good as they are. But what we need is that interface because I, let's say I make decisions, I need to have that data delivered to me in a way that I can make decisions. And I need to be able to visualize that data. I need to be able to query it. I need to be able to have it presented to me in a lot of different ways that work with the limitations that I have cognitively as a human being. And then taking decision-making to the next level. I'll tell you a story. Last semester, there was a company in Boston, I'm not going to name it, they actually had an opening for an analyst that they could not fill for three months. And this is a great example of the kinds of jobs and the skills that we're gonna be seeing in the future. Now imagine hundreds of applicants, three months, cannot fill the position, why? Because they're showing this data to the applicants. Every applicant is coming in, each one modeling the data, some developing, you know, model with R, some with Python, they're coding it in different ways. This particular data set was by state, and some of the states like Texas, Georgia, Florida had missing data, and simply it was incomplete data set. Every analyst said, well, you know, here's the analysis, but when it comes to these states, well, the data is incomplete. Well, The company said to me, that's the reality. That's what life is. We wanted one of the analysts to say, but here, where we don't have complete data, where we have other kinds of issues, the strategy is going to be X. Simply saying, well, I don't have enough data. I don't know what to do with it. That doesn't address the problem. So as humans, we need to be able to answer the business problems in a context that is complex. And having data that machine learning crunches for us is one aspect of it, but only one aspect. So we need to foster these human skills and let the machines do what they're doing. So Jason, coming full circle to your question, no, yes, you have reached your limit in processing. So let the machines do it, but let the machine filter it in a way so that you can actually answer the higher level questions that are going to solve the business problem. The machine then becomes a tool to serve you, 
not you serving the machine or you not even being on par with the machine. It's just a tool to give you some of the answers. I love how you present that. And in this case, you know, the incomplete data, it's such a relevant thing that happens all the time in the workplace. Like I know so many times we want to make strategic business decision. Like if you look at a case study and I went to business school myself, every time there's a case study, it's so convenient. All the data's there. I can just look at all these points and then apply whatever model they're trying to teach me and just, you know, plug it in, work the numbers and voila, I get an output. Yet in the real world, like not only do I get missing data, but a lot of time my data is statistically unreliable. Sometimes it's filled with biases. There are so many variables. It's almost like predicting the weather sometimes, yet you're supposed to notice these trends. You're supposed to still make educated decision. And so you mentioned how the STEM disciplines are not necessarily going to be as important as the other types of skills we need to develop. What are specifically these skills and how is it helping us with our critical thinking? I'm going to answer that in a second, but let me just give two sentences to what you talked about. That is another conversation. I'd love to come back, Jason, and talk about that. Dirty data is my pet peeve. So we all have certain pet peeves, and dirty data is definitely one of them. My expertise is in forecasting, as you know, and we have wrestled with dirty data for decades. It was a problem before we had big data. Now it's more of a problem. And one of my personal pet peeves, I have literally seen this. I have seen where there's garbage data and somebody puts it on a PowerPoint. That's the pet peeve that I have. Well, you see it once it gets on a PowerPoint, it's like, oh, well, it's got to be true, right? It's, it's on a PowerPoint. I mean, nobody questions a PowerPoint. And so I'm actually, I'm thinking of writing an article of just the kinds of questions to ask every time you see data or see a PowerPoint or see trends up or down or say the forecast came up with X. Well, what you just said, how did you handle missing observations? What was the, there's so many questions to ask because the garbage in, garbage out. And right now we just have way more data and it's not scrubbed properly. And that's a whole, it's a whole conversation, but I hate it. Let's answer that question about the skills in a second, because this is also a pet peeve of mine. I feel like we need to really? dig a little deeper. Oh yeah. And so in this case, it seems like with big data and machine learning, it's almost accelerating the amount of data that is garbage being yeah. processed to make bigger and bigger decisions. And there's like a false confidence in that. Yes. Is this creating major business decisions that hold companies back? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Because people don't know what to ask or how to question it. Again, once it gets on a PowerPoint, it takes a life of its own. And then we're focused on why does it show an upward trend or why is this market you know, doing what it's doing? And we don't really know which questions to ask. Did you do a trading day adjustment? How did you handle the outliers? Did you eliminate outliers? outliers. There's some basic questions. One doesn't have to be a statistician. I think executives as well need to be able to ask some of these questions or at least make sure that the people that are running the forecast or running the data can stand by it and say, yes, we've addressed this. Because right now, the way it is, we just see the output of the data. I mean, I've literally seen people, this happened to me a few times, in a hallway, and the data is really very, very tenuous. And I've walked into a meeting, and now it's on this beautiful PowerPoint. And I'm thinking, 
do I say something? I mean, what, you know, what do I do? So now we're in this problem area more than ever. And everybody is so excited about the data that they have or how much data or the data shows. And I think it's important that we know, let's say the five top things to ask whether it's been done with the data. And I've seen situations where questions were asked and people stammered. And just by the fact that they're not sure, they need to go back to the drawing board and assure that the data set's correct. A lot of times more data is not better. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind. It's just very misleading. And then you end up going into markets, following products, doing things that are extremely misleading. So very important area. All right. So for everybody listening, this is a really important part, which is, yes, the data is super important, but know that in an interconnected world today, there's so many more variables and influences than we can probably wrap our minds around. So you always want to make sure that if you see a data point within a slide, make sure to question it. And if you're going to be reading Dr. Sanders's blog, she is going to have an article coming out following this interview that's going to give us some more powerful questions to ask. But I think the big moral here that we wanted to stretch on is really when you look at data, ask more questions. Dig deeper and don't take it for granted because this can lead to a lot of confidence that is based on a wrong assumption. So now I'll bring it back full circle as we talked about, okay, what are the skills that I should be focused on to make me better at discerning the data and coming up with strategic ways of predicting what I should do with the data I have, even if it's incomplete? Yeah. So kind of going back to the skills, context matters. I think that what's happening today is people are really focused on coding and learning those skills. And those skills require very much a very deep, deep knowledge. However, machine learning is getting such that machines are able to teach themselves increasingly. Things like communication, negotiation, systems thinking are skills, whether it's through a class or some kind of a way to develop. If students ask me and they say, I can only take one class, what should it be? I usually say either public speaking or communication or negotiation. Machines will never, ever be able to do negotiation. You know, it's a client to client. When it comes to speaking to executives or presenting the data, as we had just talked about it, you're never going to see an AI or a robot presenting the data. You're going to see a human being doing it. So people, we need to have systems thinking of the business, systems understanding. One of the things that I find, you know, I teach classes on this, systems, supply chain, you know, how to use AI for decision-making, business strategy, things like that. But it's interesting that engineering students have the hardest time with this because they want a right or wrong answer. They want to be able to apply an algorithm with the right answer. And in these cases, when it comes to business and life, there isn't a right or wrong answer. It's really understanding the assumptions and the caveats and looking at probabilities and risks and then being able to come up with a good solution or a good answer given what you have. So I think people really need to understand the business system, the context 
I actually have a forecasting, a very little forecasting book that I actually had wrote it for BEP Press and I did it. It really came out of my consulting. It's a baby book. I think it's like super cheap, but it has like a lot of the stuff in terms of, you know, how to look at data, some of the very basic businessy questions to ask and so forth. And I just took it out of my consulting notes is what I did because you don't need to be a statistician. And this is where I think a lot of people are moving into thinking, oh, I'm just going to learn to code, especially if you're young, what is this going to be? A five, six year position? And then it's going to be something else. But no one can take away your understanding of the organization as a whole, how business strategy works, what are the market big decisions, how to negotiate, how to talk to people. And that's getting harder and harder. You know, emotional intelligence, being able to work a room and Those are hard skills to develop, but that is what people need to be focused on because a machine will never take that away. And I think that something like coding is really short-lived because machines are going to be so much better at it than we are. Mm. We talked a bit about that even before the call is how a lot of us are kind of being in a reactive mode. We're like, oh, okay, maybe my job will not exist in a few years. So I need to learn what is that newest skill. And as you mentioned, coding seems to be the one that people are drawn to. But at the same time, that is, again, one that could potentially be disrupted in the short to medium term. The ones that are the core human skills, the things that will allow you to be unique as a human that isn't going to be replaced anytime soon, at least, by machines are going to be those core skills that are most sought out. Now, if I'm a small or a medium business, I have a series of employees. Is this also the kinds of trainings I should be trying to provide for my employees? Are there things I should be doing differently when it comes to hiring, given that there's all these new technologies that are coming? How does that impact how I'm going to grow as a company? And is there like differences I should be taking into consideration, given that AI is writing? Are there certain departments that should be looking to shrinking? What do I do with, again, this enormous amounts of data? (laughs) I actually think in many ways, small startups, small companies, medium-sized companies have an advantage because they're much more limber. You can see the totality of the business much more so than if you're in a large incumbent organization that's a little bit of a dinosaur with a lot of legacy systems. So there's an advantage there. To answer your question is one big absolutely across all dimensions. What is very important is that as these companies acquire technology, they acquire technology in a way where the pieces are connected through the organization. They're connected through the organization and match with the capabilities of the workforce, that they're simultaneously training their talent and investing in their workforce so their skills, uh, skills of the workforce can interface with the technology. One of the things that happens with companies is they will acquire, say, a customer interfacing platform, but that may not be connected to the operations part of it or the sourcing part of it. That is one of the biggest mistakes. As you know, I'm a supply chain and an operations person. Bottlenecks, are the biggest problem in an entity. So yeah, you could have an amazing CRM platform interface with the customer, but I promise you, if you are not able to deliver on those promises, you're not gonna be in business for long. And the way to make it happen is to make sure that the organization internally is connected and then it's connected with key suppliers. And as far as I'm concerned and what I've observed, a company is far better off 
having a less sophisticated technology, but one that is seamlessly integrated throughout the organization and with their workforce, with their talent that is being trained regularly, rather than investing in one platform, let's say on the customer end, where the rest of it isn't functioning at the same speed. So to me, that is what smaller and medium-sized companies have the advantage. They have the advantage that they can actually gain a lot from, you know, a lot of very simple tools. Everybody wants AI and everybody wants this predictive analytics. I promise these small and medium-sized companies, you can get tremendous gains with basic statistics, with good data, with just what we call descriptive statistics, you know, using silly, dumb things like means and standard deviations. But if your enterprise is responsive to what you find, you're going to do a whole lot better than having some amazing predictive analytics on the customer end but not being able to deliver or not being able to respond. And next thing you know, you've got issues of inventory costs or delays or expedited shipments and so on. So this is where I think the really big advantage and the big gains are for small to medium-sized companies. Invest in lesser technology, but make sure it is integrated throughout the organization and that your workforce is very used to working together and with the technology itself. I love it. And as we close this off, I was going to ask you finally, is our future friendly as all these things are coming up? Are we seeing a friendly future? Are there some areas that we'll see more harm? What's your opinion on that? I actually have mixed feelings on it. I'm going to be honest. I have a tendency to be very honest, which my students like and my consulting companies like as well. I'm brutally honest. So obviously, when we get into things, there are legal issues. There are biases in the data, as we had discussed earlier today. If we just blindly take the data without taking out the biases and scrubbing it, it could lead to really harmful decisions. When we consider things like deep fakes that a lot of areas we're seeing more now in the competitive landscape, it's pretty scary. I really wish that we had more mechanisms for protection. And I very much believe in businesses in terms of, you know, being able to develop ways. And we discuss some in the book as well in terms of finding ways for companies to protect themselves and their workers and to secure the data. I am optimistic only from the standpoint that I think the future is ultimately going to be with the workers. And those workers that really are creative and innovative and that have human skills. I have, for example, I have a lot of stories, but I had a student last semester who called me. He was graduated a few years ago, had a great job, not going to mention the company, but that job slowly was becoming more automated. And the job that he ultimately ended up taking was one where I think I'm seeing a lot of jobs moving into, and that is working for the company, a different company, but being able to interpret the data, being creative to be able to assess the risks and present the outcomes to senior management. So overall, I think it's going to be bumpy for a while. I think there's a lot of companies and people that are in love with technology. I think more than ever, I have moved now to where I'm in love with human talent and what humans can do. And I think ultimately that's what's going to prevail. 
Dr. Nada Sanders, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time and sharing all these insights. And for everybody listening, we've covered a lot here talking about what does this human machine, this humanity working with machines in the future, there may be a sense of overwhelm where technology and information is moving so fast, it's harder for us to keep up. But what we're seeing as a revolution here is not having these things go faster and us needing to keep up. It's actually us being more creative, being more intuitive, fixing the gaps in the data that machines cannot necessarily see and that we cannot necessarily predict with a yes or no answer. It's applying these ideas of looking at data, spotting the gaps, seeing where we can actually be more intuitive and more creative so that we can actually make better decisions without being over-reliant on that data. There's a lot of amazing things that are going to be coming out. We talked about AI, machine learning. So your job might be mutating, but you don't necessarily need to just jump in the next skill that could get you out of the rut because these could be things that are automated as well. Think about the real things you want to develop, which are emotional intelligence, public speaking, communication, creative thinking, using your intuition. If you're listening to this podcast, you should already be embracing all these ideas because this is always what we want to bring forward for you because we know these are the skills that will prepare you for the future. And is that future friendly? Well, there are going to be some bumps in the road, but as we know, challenges always precede growth and we're going to be going into some amazing growth and amazing times in the future. Dr. Nada Sanders, once again, thank you so much for being here and everybody, thanks for listening. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, everybody. My name is Jason Campbell and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.